0: Hello, and welcome to the Why We Argue podcast. I'm Robert Talese, your host. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. Why We Argue is produced by Humility and Conviction in Public Life, a project based at the University of Connecticut, which explores how to balance our deepest commitments with open-mindedness, a respect for reason, and intellectual humility. The series, which is made possible by generous funding from the John Templeton Foundation, features brief discussions with publicly minded figures about the state of civil discourse in contemporary democracy. My guest today is Ilya Soman. Ilya is professor of law at George Mason University. He's not only an accomplished legal academic and expert on constitutional democracy, he's also a public intellectual whose work has been featured in the Wall Street Journal, the Los Angeles Times, and the New York Times, among many other major outlets. He's appeared on NPR, CBS, MSNBC, and the BBC, and he blogs regularly at the Volek Conspiracy at the Washington Post website. He is, moreover, the author of a wonderful book titled Democracy and Political Ignorance, Why Smaller Government is Smarter, which was published in a revised edition by Stanford University Press in 2016. Hi, Ilya. Hey, how are you? I'm doing okay. Uh, how are you doing today? <laughs> Great, great. so thanks for joining us on the Why We Argue podcast. Um, So, Ilya, the U.S. has a new president, and his first first month in office has been, um, we might say, uh, by many metrics, perhaps non-standard, and also by many metrics, uh, the preceding election and campaign uh, season seems to also have been filled with surprises. Um, For one thing, the polling seems to have been unreliable. Um, Traditional sources of news and political information continue to be uh, attacked uh, on various uh, grounds. And citizens seem to be deeply divided in a way that, at least from my perspective, uh, it's not clear whether it's correct to say that citizens disagree over any particular proposal or value commitment or even matter of fact the divisions seem to go deeper than usual. Um, they seem to be disagreements about whether there are facts or what the facts could be or what makes something a fact or what makes something of value. Now, you're an expert, uh, among other things, on public ignorance. And um, in an environment saturated with talk and allegations of fake news and alternative facts, could there be such a thing as ignorance? Of course, there can.
1: Uh, whether there's fake news out there or not, there are also real facts about the world and people can be and often are ignorant about them. Uh, and I think, you know, there's several levels just ignorance. One is ignorance about very basic political information, such as which officials are responsible for which issues, which party is in control of Congress, what Obamacare is and what it does. A recent poll came out finding that over a third, of the public doesn't realize that Obamacare and the Affordable Care Act are the same thing. And so there are many basic things like that that the uh, the public or a majority of it often doesn't know. Uh, and they have an impact on people's political attitudes, and voting choices and other decisions. There's also a second level where people do know some things. Uh, But they're highly biased in the way that they process information. As a result, they tend to discount or ignore anything that goes against their pre-existing views. On the other hand, they overvalue anything that reinforces it, and that makes them susceptible to deception, fake news, conspiracy theories, and so forth. This phenomenon exists on both right and left, and it's certainly not unique to the last election, but it's fair to say that Donald Trump exploited this kind of ignorance, both the ignorance about basic facts and the susceptibility to deception and manipulation. He exploited that even more than most conventional politicians do, and I think much of his success, not all but much of it uh, is due to his skill at this kind of demagoguery.
0: right. so l- let me ask a question about so do you think that um, I mean that's a th- that was a a, a a real nice way of putting at least two dimensions of complexity when we're thinking about public ignorance, right? There's information people don't have, and then there's ways, you were saying, in which people have information but process it in ways that reveal or are driven by biases and, uh, and other kinds of uh, effects that are not always visible uh, uh, to us that we're susceptible to. Um, do you have any views about the role um, in that sort of not only media but maybe particularly social media Has played in um, uh, maybe in not particularly uh, or especially um, or only maybe this past election, but is there a way in which the social media environment has contributed to these tendencies so that they seem? I mean, they seem to me more pronounced than they have been in the past. It's certainly fashionable
1: to blame the media, both conventional media and social media, for the sad state of public ignorance and. Uh, I certainly think there are many flaws in both kinds of media, but I also think uh, their role is easily overstated and often is. Uh, If you look at the level of political ignorance today, it's not that much different than it was 20 or 30 years ago before we had the Internet and modern social media. Uh, And also in those days, people, lots of studies showed that people were still susceptible to deception, manipulation, manipulation. Uh, to believing things that accorded with their pre-existing views and ig- ignoring those that didn't. Uh, I do think that what we have today is in some ways worse than two or three decades ago. I'm not sure the media is as much to blame for this uh, as growing political and partisan polarization. If you look at data on how People feel about the opposing political party, say how Republicans feel about Democrats and vice versa. They hate each other on average much more today than 20 or 30 years ago. There are a number of reasons for that. But uh, the bottom line problem here is that the more you hate and despise the opposing party, uh, the more you tend to be susceptible to any kind of deception and manipulation that reinforces your pre-existing views and the more you're going to be closed off and suspicious of uh, any opposing viewpoint, particularly one of, uh, that's associated with the opposing party that you love to hate.
0: Right. But do you think, though, um, that maybe the social media environment, Facebook and Twitter feeds and comment threads on um, uh, web pages, um, maybe they don't increase our, our vulnerability to certain kinds of biases, confirmation and others. Um But maybe they make the occasions for um, being subject to those biases much more prevalent. Could that be true? It could be true, uh,
1: but I think the case for it is not as strong as some people like to claim. Uh, If you think about people who spend a lot of time arguing on social media, trolling and so forth, they are the kinds of people who in an earlier generation might well also have been very committed partisans and might have uh, sort of channeled those proclivities in other ways. So if you look at other periods in American history that were where there was deep partisan division of various kinds, say in the 1850s or the 1930s, or perhaps in some ways in the sixties, it's hard to say whether things are worse today than they were then when you control for various other variables. Uh, that said, it certainly could be true that social media is making things worse, and certainly much of what you see on social media is repulsive and deeply regrettable. Uh, I'm just not sure it plays as big a role in the situation as a lot of people say that it does, Uh, because if you look at past eras when we didn't have this particular technology, you see very similar problems arising. Maybe at the margin it's worse because of Facebook and Twitter. I'm certainly no fan of Twitter in particular, even though I do use it. Uh, but I think its role uh, is not may not be as great as uh, may seem to be the case to some people.
0: Right. Now, let me, again, just ask about the data, which, uh, uh, which uh, you're expert in. Is there a correlation between, um, or could there be data that suggests, uh, I'm, I'm not, now not sure how this would be tested. Well, I guess I can think of some ways, but is there a correlation between sort of, um, political ignorance and the tendency to see the other side as um, something to be despised rather than merely mistaken. Are those at all correlated?
1: To some extent, but it's made complicated by the fact that the most rabid partisans also tend to be the people who follow politics more, most closely. I see. They are what in my book I call political fans. Uh, (laughs) So if you merely just uh, do an analysis where you correlate knowledge with bias. It may even be the case that some of the most knowledgeable people are the most biased, uh, because some of the most knowledgeable people are those who are the most committed political fans who are, you know, the strongest partisans. If you control for partisanship, uh, you control for some other variables like that, I think it will turn out that more knowledgeable people are more cognizant of the fact that Uh, There's opposing views on different issues that may be valid, uh, but much depends on the person's motives for seeking out political information. Uh, In my book, I point out that if your only motive for seeking political information is just to be a better voter, to make better decisions, that's not much of an incentive because the chance that your vote will make a difference is very small. Uh, So sadly, A high percentage of the people that do spend a lot of time learning about politics, they're doing it for reasons other than truth-seeking. They're doing it because they're political fans, because they enjoy being partisans, uh, and so forth. Uh, Much as if you think about sports fans who made the book I analogize to political fans to some degree, the most committed sports fans, for the most part, are not the people who want to objectively study sports to get the truth about who's the best player or the best coach or whatever. Uh, there are people who are really committed partisans of the Yankees or the Red Sox or uh, the 49ers or the Cowboys or whatnot. And be- precisely because they're really strongly committed fans, they tend to process information in a biased way. If a call goes against their team, they tend to assume it must have been a bad call. If it goes in favor of their team, they assume it must be right. And the way that sports fans process sports information also tend to be similar in relevant ways to the way that political fans process political information.
0: Well, good. I'm glad we got you know, one of the things I I, I liked about um, uh, uh, your book uh, was that the way in which you you you, you fashioned that analogy. Um, so let me ask a, a, a sort of a question between the the sort of political fans, as 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 you've called them in the book, and we're now calling them, and uh, sports fans. But is it is it is it pre- is it so prevalent among sports fans to see the fans of other teams as? Um, Beyond the pale and craven. I mean, they just like the they like the wrong team. But it seems in politics, there's there tends to be, or maybe it just has a different face. Uh, there seems to be more of a tendency to not not be able to recognize the other side as having a view at all, rather than just being a noise machine or uh, um, that is. Um, it seems that the rivalry between sports fans doesn't doesn't hit the same level as the rivalry among political fans, or do you think I'm mistaken about that? So
1: I'm not saying that the analogy between sports fans and political fans is perfect in every way, right? Clearly political fans can be even more intolerant and hostile than sports fans. Those sports fans uh, can go pretty far in this to the point of having violence and riots against fans of rival teams, which has occurred in Europe, Latin America and elsewhere. And even on, rarer occasions in the US. Uh, Obviously, with political fans, uh, this goes even further uh, in that with sports fans, often at least there's at least some sense that, uh, you know, uh, I'm a Red Sox fan because I grew up in Boston, but if I grew up somewhere else, I could easily be a Yankees fan or a a Dodgers fan or whatnot. Whereas on the other hand, with political fans, uh, because uh, they don't process the information at all objectively and they tend to think that it's just very obvious that their side is right. Uh, There's not a sense that uh, they became a fan of their particular side because of arbitrary background characteristics or happenstance. There's a sense that they became a fan of their side because that's the only right thing to do and fans of the other side uh, must be either ignorant or stupid or evil.
0: Right. Um now, it's it's also an interesting feature of of the analogy is that um, uh, both politics and sports are um, central foci of a, um, a in some some people's view peculiar media uh, um, uh, entity. Uh, there's sports radio and political radio; <laughs> uh, those are the two main sort of talk radio platforms. Um, and there again. Uh, I'm just a casual observer of these things. It seems that disagreement on sports radio um, it tends to be more civil, even among people who really don't like uh, each other's um, sports fan commitments uh, than political radio. does that does that seem like it's right or you you could be right.
1: Uh, I'm not an expert on either sports or political talk radio. I would say, though that, Sports radio, in my impression, at least, tends to be regional, so it tends to be oriented towards fans of a particular team, or at least of the teams in a particular city, uh, and therefore uh, there's a sense in which the discourse is all oriented towards fans of one side. With political talk radio, uh, you know, th- th- things are a little bit more complicated. Sure. Though there too, uh, you see uh, discourse that's. You know, There is a conservative talk radio show versus a liberal one, and they have mostly an audience of their viewpoint, but it probably is the case that more of political talk radio is generated towards uh, fostering hatred of the opposing side, whereas with sports talk radio, while you do see this sometimes, it may be more about sort of loyalty to your own team and only secondarily uh, hatred of the other team.
0: Well, the, the one thing again, I'm not a, myself much of a sports fan, but um, one thing that's that's interesting. I, I'm sure somebody out there has been been paying attention to this stuff in a scholarly way. Um, one thing that's interesting is um, the uh, the callers at sports radio tend. Uh, it's not uncommon for callers to be pretty sophisticated with statistics, <laughs> that they can do math uh, when uh, when thinking about um, their sports team uh, in a way that. Um, uh, isn't in evidence uh, in sort of political talk uh, radio where data and um, sort of numbers get thrown around in ways that seem um, not fully informed.
1: That could be, again, I haven't seen a study comparing yeah. the two. There certainly has been a movement in sports fandom over the last 10 or 15 years uh, for more fans being involved in statistical analysis in the wake. Like. Right. Uh, at the same time, uh, if you listen to enough political talk radio, you will hear people call in saying, you know, I have my survey data which shows that my position is really the most popular. And if only the party were to adopt all my positions, that it would yeah. win every election. Or, you know, I have this data showing that Obamacare is failing or that it's succeeding. And, you know, here's all the you know evidence that I have. Uh, and, you know, in both sports radio and political radio, uh, the people who call in with stuff like that their the quality of their remarks will vary greatly.
0: Right. So can we, can we turn to, um, polling? Um, so, uh, one of the, one of the things that one often hears, especially, um, among people who were disappointed with the election results, um, is there's a lot of diagnosing and lamenting about, um, over rather, uh, you know, misleading polling and bad polling, and we shouldn't trust pollsters. Uh, I take it you've looked at this somewhat. Um, Do you have anything to say about what's gone on with the polling, if anything?
1: Yeah, I think the polling wasn't nearly as bad as many people say that it is. What was flawed was some people's analysis of the polling. Uh, Overall, uh, polls tended to show that Hillary Clinton would win the popular vote by about three to four points. She actually won it by two points, so there was about – maybe a one to two point polling error there, that's not that big, it's not unusual, it's not even that much difference from the degree of error that we had in 2012, uh, when it was also about one to two point. Uh, the difference, of course, was that the error in 2012 merely meant that Obama got a slightly bigger victory than the polls predicted, whereas the error in 2016, because of the way that it played out in certain key swing states, and actually led to the outcome being different than was expected. Uh, but if you look at some of the better analysts, what they predicted in the case of Nate Silver, for example, was that there was roughly a 30% chance that Trump would win. That was Silver's final prediction in the uh, couple of days right before the election. And of course, events that have a 30% chance of happening, they happen all the time. So I think the mistake that was made was not so much that the polling was bad, though there may have been methodological errors in some of the polls and some of those key swing states. I haven't studied that closely. Rather, the error that was made was sort of to make the assumption that if one side is consistently leading in the polls, even by a small margin, uh, that meant that it was almost inevitable that they would win, uh, whereas if the lead is only by two, three, or four points, then a small polling error uh, of the kind that happens all the time could potentially swing the election the other way, which I think is exactly what happened. It also meant that given the small size and the margin, small events like the last letter by Comey and other things of this type could potentially shift the balance in a way that they would not have done if, say, it was a five or seven or eight point polling lead as opposed to a three or four point one.
0: So something that you said uh, struck me as very interesting because it sounded as if one of the, um, one of the things that may have um, occurred is that some of the people looking at multiple polls um, seeing a consistent trend of uh, Hillary Clinton um, winning by, you know, let's say four points, three points, which is pretty significant um, – Thereby took that took those the, the multitude of those polls or the number of those polls as um, confirming evidence that she would win. It's almost like a gambler's fallacy in a way that um, you've got 12 polls, all of which show that Hillary's winning. You know, Hillary's going to win. That the fact that there's 12 of them rather than 10 of them provides additional evidence or something. Is this right?
1: Yeah, I, the fact that there's 12 rather than 10 does provide some additional evidence. Right. But as Nate Silver and other analysts pointed out even beforehand, it is often the case that errors in polls are correlated because most reputable polls, there are, are some significant similarities in their methodologies. Uh, and therefore, if one is erroneous, there's a good chance a lot of other ones are as well. Uh, So, therefore, the the evidence is not as mutually reinforcing uh, as it would be in a world where the errors and polls had little or no correlation with each other. I
0: see. I see. Great. So, um, given that uh, we've we've got uh, um, these tendencies um, in our political thinking, uh, these these kinds of biases towards, you know, we 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 give a, a uh, we, we upgrade uh, in our own minds evidence that speaks in favor of our views. We discount the credibility of countervailing evidence. Um, we tend to uh, surround ourselves with confirmers uh, and uh, marginalize disconfirming uh, considerations. Um, do you think that there are any sort of lessons that we should take away as as uh, as a public uh, from uh, this particular election?
1: Uh, yeah. Yeah, so I would say a couple of things. One is it's good to at least be aware of the problem of political ignorance and also of these biases that you just mentioned. Uh, people who are aware of them are at least perhaps somewhat less likely to be overconfident in their opinions and the like, and perhaps to be at least slightly more open to opposing arguments and evidence. Uh, but the bigger takeaway, I think, is that uh, what we want to do is over time, alter the structure of incentives so that people will be less likely to behave that way. And I think the root of the problem here is what I pointed to previously, that if your goal is in acquiring political information is just simply to be a better voter, that isn't much of an incentive at all, because the chance that your vote will make a difference to an electoral outcome is extremely small, about one in 60 million in a presidential election, for example. Uh, so therefore, it's not surprising that a lot of people are just ignorant. They focus on other kinds of things where their time is more likely to have a payoff and that those who do follow politics closely, truth seeking is not their highest priority. Uh, if we want to change that It would be desirable to make more of our decisions in settings uh, where we have better incentives to acquire good information and also to use it wisely. Uh, To give an example that I also use in the book, if you're like most people, you probably spent more time and effort acquiring information and thinking about it. The last time you bought a car or a TV set than the last time you decided who to vote for, for president or for any other political office. That's not because you think that your TV set is more important than who governs the country or that it deals with more complicated issues. It's that you knew that the TV set decision would actually make a difference. The TV that you choose is the one that's actually going to be sitting in your living room. On the other hand, when you flip on the TV, the chance that you can affect Who the president that you see on TV is going to be, that's a one in 60 million chance. So, uh, you don't work hard on acquiring information. And when you do acquire some, you don't make much effort to correct your biases. So if we want to address this problem, we want a setting where more of our decisions will be like the TV set decision and fewer will be like our uh, presidential election decisions are now. Uh, and to make a long story short, uh, we can achieve that in part by limiting the power of government so that more decisions are made in the private sector. So that would be like the TV set decision. We can also decentralize government so that people can vote with their feet. Uh, when you decide what town you're going to live in or what state you're going to live in, that also is a much more careful decision for most people than a decision on who to vote for an election. Uh, and people can then choose between state and local governments based on which have the best public policies, the best schools, the lowest taxes, the lowest cost housing and so forth. None of these decisions are going to be free from bias or ignorance. None of us are going to be like Mr. Spock in Star Trek, who is always completely knowledgeable and always uh, very logical and unbiased in a way he processed information. But there's a lot of evidence that when we vote with our feet, we generally do better than when we vote at the ballot box.
0: Well, that's that's wonderful. Yeah. Um- and uh, uh interesting uh set of um uh thoughts moving forward uh Soman, uh, i i, w- I want to thank you again for appearing on the why we argue podcast
1: Thank you very
0: much for having me. Um, And thank you, listener, uh, for tuning into the podcast, which is produced once again by the University of Connecticut's Humility and Conviction in Public Life Project, with generous support from the John Templeton Foundation. You can follow the project on both Twitter and Facebook. The project is at At Public Humility. Thank you. Bye for now.